You are now listening to Out of the Blank. So I've been studying Greek history for the past couple of days, like a lot more than I was. I have an interest in it, but a little bit more getting into it because I was trying to figure out, do you feel confident enough? Because you're the expert, at least that I go to when I need some answers and especially about Greek mythology. But do you feel confident that you could probably link anything happening now, any type of thoughts or any type of uh, movements that are going on? to greek history because i've just discovered a few where i'm like this is exactly what we're dealing with today wow well that's a really interesting opening question um i guess my response would be number one in the sense that we're all human beings and human beings confront like the same basic issues in life no matter the epic in which we live or you know the details then yes but on the other hand i've seen a lot of discourse online where people are are just sort of ham-handedly trying to shove um modern events into like ancient cookie cutters and that works less well so yes and no at the same time <laughs> Kind of like how Medusa was trending on Twitter because everyone found out her origin story and then started saying that this is the patriarchy of men and men need to burn. I'm like, hang on a second. Let's remember these are myths, too. I don't think there was a lady that could turn people into stone. And if she could, that it would be a horrible life to live. But I started kind of like looking at things like, all right, if you want to talk about Atlas holding up the weight of the world on his shoulders, how many people every day feel like they're holding? the weight of their uh, of the world on their shoulders so many immense problems hercules with an, an over assuming amount of tasks that he had to complete these labor challenges and he was able to overcome all of them are kind of like motivation to get you moving into life but then yeah, but, i and, and then also too think about why hercules was assigned those tasks what did he do he didn't do anything he was assigned those tasks as a sort of punishment by hera or Juno, queen of the gods, because she resented the fact that he resulted from a encounter that Zeus had outside of their relationship, right? So Hera comes along and he's, she's like, oh yeah, I don't like you because you're, you're that other kid my husband had with somebody else. Yeah. So Hercules didn't even do anything directly. Exactly. Well, how many people do something in life that causes something to throw a curveball at them? When people say life threw a curveball at me, that could be the same equivalent. You know, you're exactly. coming across a challenge, something in life. But what was interesting to me was I just read, I want to make sure I get this name proper. Because uh, if I don't, then I know the community is going to be very upset at me for mistaking this. But it happens to do with um the story about the it was the hold on making sure i can get the the myth of herma hermaphroditus i'm pretty sure i might be mispronouncing that name but it, he was the son of hermes and aphrodite and he was one of the most beautiful like people ever and he was swimming in this lake and this nymph had seen him and jumped in the lake with him and then grabbed him and started kissing on him. And he's trying his best to push her away. And she prayed to the God to make them united forever. And he was half man, half woman. Half woman. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of what we're dealing with today where a lot of people like the transgender thing. So I start looking at it like maybe we're kind of the tales from myth. A lot of them are correlating to today. Not as simple as the Atlas holding up the weight of the world, meaning you're holding up the world's problems, but even it gets down to some detailed stuff, just like this. I saw this. I was like, Oh my God, like, are we just repeating past events or past stories and finding a new way of thinking today? Not saying it's wrong. I'm just looking at it. Like, are we history is like giving us a plan here. It's giving us like an outline too. Cause we're, either we're picking stuff up or we're seeing stuff from the past and making it into the future or it's just like a roadmap like predicting the future like the minds and a calendar 
Well, I, I don't think that it would be predicting the future exactly, but I do think that one of the things that we're picking up on, and you especially picked up on here, is that as human beings, we experience a lot of things and we have to come to grips with a lot of issues, including like the issue of identity, right? Who are we? Why are we the way we are? Um, what do we do when we feel like we don't fit in? What does that even mean? And ancient cultures had, you know, a different way of dealing with this, but it's not like they didn't deal with it. Because I think a lot of people, when they think about the past, they think, oh, you know, because I don't see this uh, direct issue in the past or in this area of history where I'm looking, people in the past just didn't deal with it. And usually that's not true at all. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I haven't been in the classroom for a bit, but I have a lot of classics teacher friends on Twitter, and some of them have said that reading the uh, ancient myths from Greek and Rome, Greece and Rome has helped some of their students with like LGBTQ um, identity issues, right? So imagine you encounter these myths when you're a teenager, just trying to sort yourself out. And then you come across something like the myth of hermaphroditus that could help you make sense of how you feel or what you feel about different things. I never had a personal experience like that, but I have heard people sort of say things like that on Twitter in, in an indirect way, because obviously th these are other people's stories and, and they're not specifically telling them. But I mean, I think what that can tell us is we're all just people trying to figure out where we fit in in the world and how we fit in. And I think one of the things that we have to remember about ancient myth, because um, you mentioned the Medusa thing, that totally blew up on Twitter the other <laughs> day. Um, in fact, I was, I was actually doing some of my real world uh, chores. And then I, I sort of picked up my phone at the end of the day, like, oh, <laughs> Wow. Um, so what can we say about that? Well, first of all, in Ovid's retelling of the myth and the metamorphoses, he does use the word in Latin that means violated. It's really blunt. <laughs> There's no way to make it nice. It's not nice. Well, I um, want to know who told the people that the Greek stories were nice. I mean, I think we all see the Disney movies, and that's what everybody's base knowledge comes from is just the simple Hercules movie or something. But I'm like, if you read the actual myths, gods were – it wasn't like just rape against women. They were raping men. They were doing – any because they were gods. That there was, there was no boundary line that was crossed. There was no sense of right and wrong. It was I'm going to do what I want because I have the power to crush you in an instant. And like I think people – based knowledge comes from the hercules movie no not everyone is singing happy show tunes not life is not a musical it's nothing like that it's a little bit dark and it goes pretty far i don't think it just goes on like when i saw medusa trending i was like please for the love of god tell me we're not going against greek mythology and trying to cancel something but i see why people are upset but to think one way of oh, this wasn't what I was told when I was a kid is where I start getting upset with the Disney movies. I'm like, look, people are having an identity crisis and it's not just on the basis of who they are. It's who we are as a society. You know, throughout history books that you saw people tearing up things about George Washington with slave teeth. And then you're like, well, that's not what I heard. It was made of cherry wood. It's like, because they make it nice and fluffy so it can be filtered through the mainstream. And if you actually do the research on it, because you're interested in it, you're going to find out some dark things that they don't really want to tell you. And Greek mythology is pretty open about everything. I mean, it's not just a men versus women factor, men versus men. It goes all over the concepts, all over the globe. It's about having what happens when you have too much power. And I think that's exactly a, that's exactly. an important thing to highlight. No, that that's exactly right. I mean, I think what the ancients were doing in the retelling of these stories was exploring sort of the nature of, of power and the nature of different kinds of human relationships. And we as modern people, um, and one of the things that I saw in 
this Medusa discourse on Twitter was that people were talking about the story and a lot of um, classics types on classics Twitter were coming back with, look, there isn't just one story. There's Ovid's story, which Ovid wrote for his reasons. There's, there are earlier versions of the myth that are attested where Medusa was always a Gorgon, right? She was never a human woman. She was never beautiful. Um, so these stories, they don't have like one canonical version. And if people think, well, I heard one story or I read one book in high school or whatever, that's more a question of your experience with it than it is what the real story is. Everybody wants to go and say, okay, what's the real story? What's the real truth? And I think one of the things that mythology teaches us is that sometimes there isn't just, you know, one story that you can narrow down and say, okay, this is real and everything else is fake. Reality can be a lot more complicated. The easiest way to example or put that into a, a great example, I would say, would be like for people looking at lore and mythology and wondering so many questions is to look at it like comic books. It's like different universes and different paradoxes happening all in the same kind of realm with the same characters. I mean, Medusa has been killed many of times. Like you were saying, she was born a Gorgon or that she was turned into one. They're all different myths and all different lores behind it. And there's different people that kill her and she just keeps coming back. It's the the same concept the Percy Jackson series is different from the actual lore mythos itself you know it, it's these concepts that people need to keep in mind it's just like comics and when I say that is it's a more severe version but there's all alternate universes the Green Lantern's been killed in a comic and then he's alive in the movies he's alive in the next they're all someone's different interpretations of it and that's kind of what the lore and the folklore is it's just very hard because we associate the mythos or the folklore with history because because it's older and people consider history as fact because it happened and it's been written down. Yes, but there is storytelling. There is ways of personifying something or having an experience in the best way to exemplify it or rationalize it to be able to be understood for future generations to be able to read. I mean, back in the day before fishermen used to go out onto the water, they would pray to the god Poseidon for calm seas and good uh, for a good day's catch, you know, and we look at that now there's no different than praying to god to that you make it to work safe it's the same thing just in different terms but the idea of being blended of people are trying to like we said identity crisis people are trying to find a truth people want to know what's fact and sadly i think the fact is that there are no facts it's very very hard and it's everyone's own interpretation to be able to I guess, understand what is real and what is not. I mean, I'm real, sure. You're real, sure. But in another world, in another dimension that we don't even know, maybe information that we don't have yet, who's to say, what's the true answer? You know, if an alien came to this planet, is water going to be known as H2O to them? Or is it going to be another base molecule? Maybe they look at us like, you call that H2O? That's freaking C56. You're like, what? What is C56? It's like, that's what we learned this liquid is on our planet. And it's like, oh, so everyone's got their own interpretations of life. I think the true meaning of it is when you read this stuff, not to be upset about the actions that have really occurred, be happy that you don't think this way and you're not doing these things now and be happy that there's this information, this guidebook that is showing you these powerful stories that have lasted throughout the test of time, things that are like a time capsule if we made today for future generations to be able to uncover. Well, that, wow. I mean, you packed a lot into that. I always I do. I think you, you always do. I think I want to try to touch on a few things here. First of all, it is a lot like comics. Now, I'm not really familiar with the different comic universes. Um, I didn't get super into that when I was a kid, but I did have friends who were. And I know that there's like canon for certain characters. And then there are these other areas where people take the characters and the identities and certain plot lines and then just put them um, like in fan fiction or just take them in different directions and in in a way you could think of mythology and the process of retelling myths across different cultures or like different groups within the same culture 
in ancient Greece, for example, is a sort of fan fiction. Not that they're telling these stories uh, because they just made them up and they think they're entertaining. But for example, there are different stories about um, Oedipus and how he became a hero and where he's buried. So Thebes will claim him and there are other myths from other places. Basically people from different localities will take like a landmark or something in their locality and then connect it with a god or a hero and say, okay, you know, this is what makes our place important. This is what gives us our identity. So it is a little bit like comics and fan fiction. Um, and also to remember that Plato, he didn't like the poets, right? <laughs> He, he, was, uh, he didn't have very many kind words for Homer. And one of the things that we see when we look at the Homeric poems is we have the you know, very serious um, scenes where warriors are reflecting and Achilles mourns the death of Patroclus, his uh, comrade in arms. And we have the action-packed battle scenes. We also have some just really funny scenes of the gods being together as a family uh, making jokes, you know, like at the end of, I think, Iliad book one, where they're all gathering together and <laughs> there's a banquet and uh, Hephaestus, because he's disabled, right? He's limping around and they're like, oh, wow, you look funny. And he's like, yeah, you know, I do look pretty funny. And then they all laugh. Um, so the way that the ancients engaged with their gods is really different from the way that modern people um, think about God or religion. They had this sort of anthropomorphic notion of them, like they had this notion that they were terrifying and powerful and absolutely not to be messed with, but at the same time, there's this anthropomorphic element in a lot of retellings of myth that makes them kind of relatable. You know, we see human motivations ascribed to the gods as well. And that just, you know, it, it makes for a good story. It makes something relatable. It was also something that uh, Plato speaking to Socrates did not like, right? Because Socrates says, hey, why do we worship the gods? They're not good. They don't do good things. They do terrible things. Why do we have our children learn these stories of the gods, you know, transgressing their own laws, lying, raping, stealing, doing whatever they want? Um, so there, even in the ancient world, there was a lot of tension around this sort of stuff, right? It's not saying that it wasn't there. I think a big part of our problem is modern people, you are asking, how did we get to this point where uh, we didn't really learn the myths the way they are? We learned a sort of PG rated version. I would say there was a big movement in the Victorian era to clean everything up. Um, the Victorians were sort of notorious for glossing over a lot of explicit imagery and even a little bit of violent imagery, but especially if it had to do with anything sexual, they would sort of gloss over it or kind of really not translate it. Or if it was really uh, graphic, just translate it into Latin and figure if you got to the point where you were good enough at Latin to read that, then you'd know what it meant. <laughs> um, but they wouldn't, wouldn't even translate it into English. So that, that comes from an earlier time where the Victorians explicitly had this idea um, that we were to take the best from the past and mold it to sort of create these positive moral examples that would then influence the world in a better way, right? So we could, we could control what went into people's heads 
and like a form of brainwashing, I'd say. I mean, if you well, really, well, like maybe a mild version of it, you know, trying to control thoughts or something as simple as like even censorship, it's blocking some words that might be offensive, but at the same time, it's also nulling intelligence when it comes to why you should know what those words mean and why you shouldn't say them instead of just banning them altogether. Um, but like what you were saying about Hephaestus, for instance, my version of Hephaestus isn't a disformed person. It's a, a, a very ugly but strong built guy from working in the forge all day with singes in his beard. And that's my own interpretation of from what I've read the very first story compared to the other ones I've read. It's an important factor to highlight. I mean, gods get talked about in different ways. They get talked about in very nice and amazing ways. And then they get talked about in not so good ones. They're all different. It's like um, if Superman in one of the comics, he went evil. He killed a bunch of people and destroyed his city. But then the next comic that came out was the city's fine and Superman never did those things. They're all different stories and all different interpretations being told because it's much like somebody creates their story of God today. Your, your interpretation, your experience is different from someone else's experience, you know, without that even being known. And it back then, that's the same thing. Somebody had an experience with Poseidon or made up a legend about Poseidon. Then in someone else's legend, that might not have even happened. You know, who came first, who came this? We're just trying to find a finite timeline of things to be put in events. It's like Marvel movies. Like they have to be very careful what they do because they can't kill any of major characters and then give them another movie afterwards. Like, wait a minute, that guy's dead. Like, why is he coming back? Same thing, but it's all personification of items and things around him. Instead of worshiping one God or one being that's doing it all, it's multiple. It's trying to, you know, narrow it down. It's not just men. It's, it's, it's men and women. You know, the big question today is, is God a woman? Is God a man? Is God this? Is God that? It's all trying to labelize one. They cut around that by giving multiple. There was 13, 12, whatever you want to say, the major ones, the minor ones, not even counting on little side ones that barely get talked about. Hestia, for instance, it just sits outside of Olympus, you know, by her dying fire, you know, goddess of the harvest. It's like you look at all these things, they were all everyone's own interpretation of what was going on. And it's kind of like today. It's just very, very difficult because of the identity crisis situation, trying to find out a finite fact of what is real and what is not, what is to believe in. I don't, I don't think we're not too far off, maybe 40, 50 years. Most of the 46% of the population doesn't have a religion. So I'm like, man, maybe that might evolve. Maybe Christianity back when I was a kid was pretty dominant. So was being Catholic, not anymore. So I'm starting to wonder, like, is it going to hit this point? Like when we stopped believing in multiple different gods, like Greeks did, where they started tearing down the statues they worshiped and spent so much time praying to because of the fact that they didn't want to believe in it anymore and they found a new belief or they you know hated them so much will that happen today i have no clue but it seems like a lot of events are repeating well i mean you definitely get that sense uh when people bring things up on social media and online uh, people are, are seeing a lot of parallels. Like like we said in the beginning, though, some um, are stronger than others, I think. And I think they get weaker when you try to tie them to like specific people or very specific events. But in terms of religious change, I mean, I think one of the things that we have to remember is that in the ancient world, religious change was often a parallel to political change. So for example, if a new god came in, it was because something political had happened. And we see that very clearly in the Roman Empire, where at the death of Augustus, the first emperor, it's decided that he will be deified. Now he was against that in his lifetime, but he did eventually agree to uh, be a deity in the far provinces and the way that this was rationalized was well he's not exactly a god but it's a way for these populations to declare their loyalty to rome okay then he died so the story became well he was hey valerie he um okay Sorry for interrupting well, you. No, no, it's okay. I'm sorry about the technical issue. So point about Augustus, basically, um, 
he becomes a god when he dies and that's part it's like following up on the story okay if the people far from rome worshipped him when he was alive to show their loyalty to the empire when he dies we're not going to say that he goes down to hades we're going to say he goes up to olympus to join the uh, olympian gods and then we see this happen with other emperors it becomes a pattern and when you're dealing with a polytheistic society it's kind of like the more the merrier but when we um when we see the move to Christianity, I mean, first of all, Christianity was an underground religion um, and the Christians got in a lot of trouble because they didn't want to worship the emperor and make the sacrifices to him. And at that time, it was clearly correlated with being loyal to the empire. So if you aren't going to express your loyalty to the empire in the same outward way that everybody else does, people aren't gonna trust you. Um, so, so they didn't trust the Christians. And when the Christians said, hey, you know, we're not a revolutionary group, we don't wanna change the government, that was not always trusted either, right? Because people didn't see sacrificing to the gods of the emperor as a big deal. Obviously the Christians did, because according to their theology, it was a huge deal. But when the Roman Empire became Christian, that was a political edict, right? Constantine was using that um, to consolidate power and proclaim his identity and say, okay, look, I'm Christian, the empire's Christian, we're not going to do this anymore. And Christianity was ascendant at the time, but I, I don't think that it would have become a state religion in the same way if the emperor himself hadn't adopted it. Fun fact, um, Constantine was only baptized on his deathbed. So according to Christian doctrine, even though he proclaimed the empire to be a Christian empire, he himself was not a Christian, technically, because he hadn't been baptized. He, waited to be baptized until he was dying, um, which was kind of like a, an ancient cheat code, uh, right? Because when you're baptized, the idea is all of your sins are forgiven. So if you're gonna go and kill a lot of people and conquer a lot of land, do who knows what, you're kind of saving up that forgiveness until the end. <laughs> um, this, this is not allowed anymore because it's, it's quite obviously a cheat code. Um, but what we're facing now, I think, is a little bit different in that we don't have that explicit manipulation of faith or belief by uh, political Fear. structures that, that we used to. People are leaving organized religion. There, there are certain sort of aspects about political discourse that have taken on um, the idea of like a, a statement of faith. You know, pe people feel like they have to say certain words at certain times. Well, I, I, I made a joke about that. Probably the cheat code to life is if you just say God every five words, then people will start liking you a lot more. Your followers would go up or whatever, because it seems like every famous person always makes a reference to God every five words. I mean, if you look at political things, people choose that the guy says, you know, God bless America. That's the whole propaganda behind it was saying like, you know, we're on God's on our side was the, is the inference I would say. But I would look at it more of like, the way I, I love the concept of religion, but I also hate ideologies. Um, I think that's why I relate more to probably Greek mythology, because it's not just one being, it's multiple, which I believe there's multiple answers to life, not just one. I think they're all religions are all possible, all of them, whatever gets somebody into the next day, I see the benefit of it. But what I don't like is certain organized ones that try and eliminate. And that's where I see the push with some people trying to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to worship at home in my own way. It's my own interpretation. I believe that's what religion was meant to be. 
your own interpretation, much like we talk about comics are their own interpretations. You're your own story. Those are everyone else's own interpretation. If God speaks to someone, not that they have to be a prophet, but God just, if that person feels like God has a closer interaction to them, I think that's important and that's what should be highlighted. But a lot of times, like you're saying, it gets used for political gain. And that's where the thing gets a little bit of a push and a fear for some people if they don't know what to believe in. I believe you have the right to believe in whatever you want, whatever religion. If you don't want to believe in a religion at all, you don't have to. But saying that it's just this has never made sense to me because nothing in life is just as simple as one final answer. There's always multiple. There's always different perspectives. Same thing with um, Egyptology. I like a lot of the shit they talk about when it comes to religion, when it talks about Horus and talks about Osiris and all this stuff. I'm like, that makes sense to me too. The death thing. I think I like that idea of death a little bit more. You're weighed and judged for your actions on life. You're good in your bad choices rather than like everyone that dies goes to the underworld and they get chosen to get sent to a sacred place or heavenly place. If they're chosen by one of the gods does or a heaven and a hell. It's the same concept. Good decisions bad decisions i think we're all getting a piece of the same puzzle here and i think all these stories somehow go in tandem with each other you know they might be simple spinoffs but everyone's got a core possibility like i was watching the movie doctor strange and the ancient one if you've ever seen that movie she's showing uh stephen strange all these textbooks she goes you see this poster he goes i've seen an acupuncture she goes you see this one saw it in a yoga studio you see this one? Oh my god yeah that's the simple one you see in a mall and she goes all these people are looking at a piece of the bigger picture but they couldn't see past the piece and i'm like that makes sense for a lot of things it seems like it's more about a bunch of gears working together than rather than having just one one. Same thing in the Marvel universe. Thor's alive. All that stuff's alive, but there's also other gods. There's also other people with powers. It's the perfect representation that there is more than just one. There's multiple. There's infinite possibilities. Wow. Um, Sorry. I no, 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 no. It's totally cool. Um, you, you've just given me a lot to respond to. I think one thing that we have to remember as modern people looking back at, at ancient religion, um, you're absolutely right when you say that, that people um, have the right to believe or not believe as their choice. I absolutely agree with that. On the other hand, ancient society was much more collectivist in nature. So the reason why these ideas that we have now, like everybody has the right to choose um, his or her own religion or choose not to have a religion or choose to just explore whatever ideas they want at whatever phase of life they want. The reason why that's so radical is because in a lot of times and places that was just not possible. Your religion was determined by where you were born in the world, what kind of family you were born into, your occupation was determined the same way. If you were a woman, your social roles were determined by, you know, whether or not you were born a woman. A lot of your life in the ancient world was predetermined. Now, there are lots of theories as to why that was, but briefly, one of the ones that's pretty convincing to me is that people had a lot of work to do just to survive. So right now, you know, of course we have a lot of problems, first world problems, but we don't, unless we're like seriously homeless or in a crisis situation, we don't do a lot of work just to survive. You know, we have technology to help us. We've got cars to take us where we want to go. We've got refrigerators to keep our food so that it, it doesn't spoil. We don't have to go out hunting or foraging every day. So we have time to think about questions like this. Whereas in the ancient world and probably before that even, religious beliefs and stories about myths and stuff, they were likely developed communally, right? So you were talking about the fishermen saying their prayers. Well, yeah, they probably said some prayers and then maybe something happened. And then, you know, the story was told over a couple generations and then that, 
resulted in a ritual that started, you know, like we all create little rituals for ourselves now. And that's like a trendy self-care thing on the internet. Oh, create your, your best morning ritual. Well, just imagine, you know, communities creating rituals. That's where a lot of this, at least according to anthropology, started out. Now, I'm not an anthropologist, so I'm probably <laughs> butchering a lot of this stuff. But this is very, um, very broad brush. I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, there are a lot of different pathways to understanding. There are interesting parallels between, you know, major religions. And you, you brought up the ancient Egyptian religion. Uh, it was funny because I was just thinking about it. My husband has a friend who's studying uh, Middle Egyptian, the language, and he posted on Facebook. Uh, about how at least this one Egyptologist's analysis of the Egyptian religion is that it's fundamentally a Trinitarian religion. And even though it looks polytheistic from the outside, all of these different gods are embodiments of the nature of the one God. So he's trying to make this argument that ancient Egyptian religion was not polytheistic, it was Trinitarian and monotheistic, had these parallels with Christianity. I think there are some issues with that uh, myself, even though I'm not an Egyptologist, but what struck me about that interpretation to begin with is that it was possible, right? So it kind of depends on how you look at things at a certain point. <laughs> yeah, well, with Osiris, for instance, um, his whole concept was like he was pieces of him that he was taking out of himself and he would call them like this is my son even though it's not his son it's just a piece of him you know a piece of his creation that's known through multiple religion even with gaia the earth you know a lot of her children they're formed from her clay they're not really her children they're technically a piece of her you know they're these concepts and things but it's just easier to call them children rather than call them like oh it's all the same thing but it's a bigger idea it is all just one of the same things there was a guy in ancient egypt that was a high priestess that was going to sacrifice himself um for it to rain and right when he was about to push the dagger into himself to sacrifice himself um it started to rain and then people said that he was the he was uh, the voice of God. He was all these types of things. And they started worshiping him. So, and it's like that could have easily happened back then. There are all these like what could be a coincidence? What couldn't be? Who's to say there isn't just one being? But who's to say there is? You know, it's this whole kind of like we said identity thing. People are trying to find an answer, and I think with something that is such a mystery, and the whole point of it is supposed to be a mystery. It's supposed to be based on belief. It's supposed to have faith into it. You can't try and find an answer to, and if you are looking for answers, then maybe it isn't the one for you, and I think that's where my conflict came to was I was asking too many questions and just getting, and so it was, and so it shall be. It's like, fuck. I, I want I want to know what's the answer is. And sadly in life, I don't think the answer is what you want it to be. And I don't think the answer is going to be able to fill that void that you need to fill because the constant source of information, I think that's what's so amazing about it. Instead of getting angry about something, instead of saying that's not true and getting upset, you should look at it as a fountain of information that's coming at you in many different ways. There's so many more, there's so much more than just one source of information. There's all these different dimensions of information that are coming to you, which should only get you even more excited. The fact that you're never going to stop learning, you're never going to stop processing, you're never going to understand it all. The concept of what the world is, what the mind is, what everything is, you're never going to be able to know because there's always something new coming to you every single day. Well, wow. Yeah. I mean, if we think of the metaphor of light, for example, I have a friend, Nick, who's working on his PhD in um, religious studies. Hi, and Nick. Will he listen to this? Hi, Nick. I, I can send him the link. He's really busy. Uh, he's up in Alaska. But a lot of what you're saying reminds me of his research, because what he's doing is he's taking um, uh, some inherited concepts of religion 
from the Indian traditions and then paralleling those with modern understandings of how we interact with technology and specifically the work of Marshall McLuhan. And uh, McLuhan was active in the mid 20th century. So long before the internet and everything like that, but still his work is super relevant to the internet because the idea is we have moved from living a really physically focused existence where we have to use our bodies to do work and survive in the world to living an existence where we're using mainly our minds and our ideas, right? So I'm not physically there with you, but I know you exist and we're having a conversation. This conversation is possible because of the technology that we have. And, you know, what is this technology except beams of light? And light is this religious metaphor, you know, going back to very, very ancient times. So there, there's a lot there to unpack that I can't really unpack, but Nick um, is pretty active on social media. And he, one of the things that he's trying to do in his research is to say, that scholars of religion and people who look at this from a, like as a student or from an analytical point of view should be open to having like religious or otherworldly experiences because there's this idea, especially in the 20th century, that if you're researching religion, you have to look at it as an artifact, right? Like as an artifact is in a museum, something that's apart from you that has nothing to do with your own experience. But he's saying, actually, you know, a lot of people have these kinds of experiences and they don't know how to articulate them. And then when they talk about them, especially if they wanna talk about them to somebody who researches religion, they'll be like, oh yeah, well, you know, you're just one of those uh, less evolved people that I study, right? I'm, I'm somehow above you in my understanding because I'm, I'm removed myself from this reality, right? I'm apart from this thing. And he's saying that that's the wrong way to go about it, that we should be, be open to having those experiences ourselves and that those are legitimate, which I think is really important. And another thing you were saying about truth, I've had this in my head, I might as well just say it. Um, when we're looking for answers, because people now, you know, it's so easy to open up your browser or go on your phone and Google, you know, what is this? When did this happen? And you get one answer. And that's very comforting to people. And I remember back when I was in the classroom with my students, especially when I was teaching English, um, the kids asked me, oh, teacher, what's the answer? And when it came to like how to formulate certain sentences, I would say, well, you could uh, answer a question with this kind of statement or that kind of statement or this other kind of statement. You have choices, right? You pretty much always have choices in language. And that would make them really upset because they, they didn't want options. They wanted one answer that they could write down in their notebooks, take home and study for the test. They wanted everything to be, you know, really clear cut because that was the way that it had been for them in high school. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not really the way it is. But I think our society and our technology encourages us to sort of stick to that worldview. If we can go on Google and get, you know, the, the top result for something, or if, if we can go Use DuckDuckGo because Google hides uh, results based on paid partnerships. Yeah. I mean, I, I just used Google pretty lazily there. But yeah, I, I am trying to move over to DuckDuckGo. But it's hard because I'm in this iPhone universe, you know, and everything's pre-programmed. And you're in this, it's like this gated community. But if we interact with knowledge purely or almost purely digitally now, uh, the idea of having this, you know, curated environment is actually kind of unnerving to me. See, because you can't 
because people are looking for obviously the first result, you know, people are looking for the top one, they're looking for the person that probably has the most possible answer. But I feel like also, there's an issue when it comes to if you don't like that answer, you go look for the one that fits your narrative. And I just say this is this is not something where you should be looking for an answer. Whatever you Google in, usually if people are Googling something of like an issue that there's happening, like how to get fingers unstuck from super glue, like something simple like that, that they're experiencing at that moment. Um, but I believe that the best thing about Google is, or the best thing about a search engine or the best thing that has multiple answers is the fact that it highlights multiple perspectives. It gives you multiple different perspectives of a person of what they're going through, what made them write this down. You know, I, it's an issue I experienced with my podcast, for instance, people comment on old videos. Someone commented on a massage podcast uh, with a person from Quebec that gives like, uh, you know, occupational massage therapy. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how like, you know, it's common to fart. It's okay. Nobody's going to get mad at you. It's a normal thing of the body. And someone had commented, actually, that's an unlawful practice. And that's this. And I'm like, from every massage person I've talked to, they said it happens and no one gets mad. So you're the only person saying it's not, but it's just a different perspective. But it's when you hear information and you've been told for so long, it's not true, or it's not this, you get upset and you feel the need to comment rather than looking at it like that's that person's interpretation that's that person's experience everything nowadays is about no it's actually this or actually trying to prove somebody wrong rather than looking at it like an experience and i'm like just look at it as an experience not everyone experiences the same thing you know everyone has different experiences in life are we're so uniquely different but we're all similar in very 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 way like a lot of ways i'd say you know it's a bad uh, word choice for me right there um, but you know, experience wise, we're very similar, but also so very different. And I think that what's, what makes us really, really unique as people, um, you know, these deferring perspectives, they're important to highlight, not shouldn't be dismissed. They should be highlighted. They should be looked at as that, that's that person's interpretation. Not that, you know, oh, they're wrong or that person's right. Look at it like that's their own choice of how they came to that, or that's their own experience. Oh, exactly. But I, I think um, one of the reasons why we see that development has a lot to do with how we interact on social media. And I think algorithms are specifically trying to create conflict um, to make people stay on the platform. For example, I saw this on Facebook. I do still have my Facebook account, but I hardly ever log in. And this is part of the reason why. I remember one time uh, when I did use it more regularly, my husband was having this conversation with one of his friends. I didn't really know this guy, um, but you know, that's fine. And he said something in the course of this conversation that uh, I think my husband knew I would disagree with, but it didn't matter, right? He can have whatever kinds of conversations he wants on Facebook, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and we didn't really talk about it because it was their conversation, except when I logged into Facebook myself, even though I wasn't friends with this guy, um, I didn't, I don't know him in real life. I didn't know him in real life. The conversation with the part that I disagreed with was right at the top of my feed. And so I asked my husband, I was like, look at this, you know? <laughs> Well, why do you think this is here? I'm not this other guy's friend. How is this on my, you know, the, the top thing on my feed? Why am I not seeing updates from my friends? And we looked at it and we looked at each other. We realized Facebook was trying to round me up. Like it was the algorithm trying to get a rise out of me. So I just ignored it, you know, because that's probably what I would have done in real life. And whatever. It doesn't matter if this other guy whom I don't even know in real life has an opinion I disagree with. I don't care. <laughs> but I, I think we, we really need to become more aware of the ways in which the technology that we use to communicate is actually influencing the communication itself. 
Yeah, um, it, it has a disconnect too because more personal interactions like this is one way, but then you're co seeing a comment from an account on Twitter. And a lot of times, half the time, that person's not even real. You know, a lot of those people that have those Twitter accounts like Jerry from Texas, he's not Jerry from Texas. He's, Ro he's Romeo from Ireland or some shit. And you're like, that's not... It's a dude using a fake account. You know, it, it, I think for a lot of times, especially with the internet, we thought we were using a product and now we're figuring out that it's actually worth a product. We're the product. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we're, and I think we need, we need to be really aware of that and actually more intentional about how we engage with it. Yeah. yeah it's absolutely. very, very hard because it's so enticing for a lot of people to look at. Well, yeah, and too, like with, with COVID and everything going on with COVID, we are using um, digital communication more than ever because we need to. So being more aware of just how that shapes our conversations is really important. And I, I like to think, although, you know, sure, a lot of people just like arguing for its own sake, but I like to think that if we didn't have that influence of social media trying to get us into conflicts with each other, making things go viral, setting people off, that we would be able to, like you said, just respect other people's experiences more and be like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, that's cool. And that's your experience. It doesn't directly affect me. Um, there's no reason why I need to be engaged with that. It's just so easy because there's such a disconnect there. It's so easy for me to type a comment if I don't, if I have an opinion or if I have a point or if I have something to go on about because you don't have the interaction there. And I don't know. I, I think people are starting to realize a little bit more, but it's the digital deal that we all kind of sign. I mean, you know what happens when you accept those terms and conditions that are on your phone, even though you don't read them, you're understanding that you're using this technology and they're going to do what they want with it. They're going to sell your data. If they're going to do all these types of things, they're going to show you an algorithm that's going to rile you up, you know, and if you feel the need in yourself to interact to it, you know, if you feel like you're at that point, a lot of people do that on a daily basis. A lot of people just look for Facebook arguments and feed off that argument style type thing. And I don't think that's a happy way to live, but you know, if someone needs that no. in their life to do so, then there's an issue there. There's something that's pushing them to that point that, you know, they need an, a conflict. They need an interaction that's negative. And I just, I, yeah, but I, I, I think it's just an interaction. Like we're social creatures. We need to have interactions with other people. You know, I mean, it just shouldn't always be negative. Right, exactly. But the algorithms, they privilege negative stuff because that's what keeps you on the platform longer. If, you know, you see a picture of the beach and, and your friends hang out on the beach and he's like, I'm having a great day, you might just leave a thumbs up, you know. Okay, well, yeah. cool. He's having if a great day. You're not going to comment on it for hours and hours. Yeah, especially if somebody's talking trash on you, it's going to get you more screen time on that app if you keep checking it every 10 minutes to write exactly. a comment back exactly and and they know that and they're manipulating people and you know we're a little bit older we're a little bit more mature um and we also grew up you know before all this took off right it all hit a different platform we used to do this back in the day in school a kid would write something on the bathroom stall then you come back the next day another well, kid would write true. something well true yeah under. that that's true that's true okay but Point this is taken. just way this is just way worse cuz now this it's is, like immediate it's it's immediate. It's twenty four seven. It's on steroids, and I think for, <laughs> kid, for kids now, like I was just thinking back the other day, what if I'd had Facebook and social media when I was in high school? That would suck. That would have been insane. I don't think I could have coped with that. I mean, I I was very introverted. I was. I had a few friends, you know, but I definitely wasn't in the popular crowd. I was getting the sense that I didn't really fit in to a lot of things. I had a lot of sort of hopes and dreams that nobody around me had even heard of. I decided I wanted to go to Oxford in, in the UK someday to study. And, you know, you're this kid in, in Hawaii. People think that going to college outside of Hawaii is a big deal. And I was thinking about, you know, going to another country and living in another country. It was just, I was the space alien, right? And imagine if there was Facebook back then. I just, I couldn't have coped. 
gives me anxiety even thinking about it. Like I was lucky yeah. that like the last couple of years of my high school is when phones were getting super big and all that. So I was like, all right, well, I'm happy I'm out of this. Like, you know, Facebook was really big when I was like 15. And then eventually by the time I got into high school, it died off. And now it's like grandparents and parents are on there now, but kids are going back to it, especially we've been out of high school for so long. People are trying to reconnect and that's an easy way to reconnect. But it's like the digital deal to remember your family's birthday like Facebook reminds you, and they also sell your information. You got to kind of weigh the options here of like where you want to go with it. It's scary stuff. It makes me afraid of the future. Hopefully there'll be a pushback on it. I mean, I crap on social media a lot. There is a way you can use it beneficially, but most of the population just wants to find out what's trending and figure out how they can be a part of it. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's a big burden to ask everybody to, to use social media, like intentionally and be really aware. There are, there are people who can, who can do that. But especially when you're talking about younger people, like, you know, I'm, I'm old. I'm really old. I used to tell my, my students, I'm, too, I'm a thousand years old when they would ask, because I feel a thousand years old some days. But I have the perspective I have because I've had the life experiences that I've had and I've been around for a little while, you know? But if you give social media and a smartphone to somebody who's 13, 14, 15, 16, they don't have the perspective to be able to just, you know, take a step back and say, okay, what is really going on? I mean, I, I guess I had a few friends in high school thinking back who probably could have done that, but not the majority of us. We, we just didn't have that kind of space. You know, we would have just gone straight into the interaction. So that, that's what worries me. It just puts such a burden on, on younger generations who need the time to sort themselves out. I couldn't agree more. I feel like if you ask the question, would you rather be on social media or cross the river of sticks? I'd probably cross the river of sticks. Yeah, I'd probably have to agree with you there. Speaking of that, I know we probably should wrap up soon. And yeah. I would be remiss. I wouldn't be a classicist if I didn't point out that it's the Ides of March. It is the Ides of March. You want to explain that real quick for everybody? It is the Ides of March. Okay, so the Ides of March... Um, the Romans, the way they did their calendar, they didn't have days for every day of the week. They had three um, sort of festivals in each month that they used to date times. So the Ides of March was like a three-day period. And it's generally placed to about now, which is March 15th. And it's famous because this is when Julius Caesar was assassinated right outside of the Senate in Rome. And once travel opens back up again, you can actually go there and you can't stand right there, but you can get pretty close. That's where and a guy was murdered. Where Julius Caesar was murdered, yeah. In, Put it on Instagram. In 44 BC. <laughs> and um, sometimes people leave roses out there. A couple of times we've been to the forum and, and there are roses there for Caesar. Um, so the story, which is related by Plutarch and Suetonius both, was that Caesar came across a soothsayer who told him, beware the Ides of March. Cave Idus Marti Caesar, in Latin. Cave Idus Marti. So Caesar, he's a pretty tough guy. And he sort of looks at that and you're like, okay, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not really afraid of anybody. Because of course, he's been proclaimed dictator for life. He's been a very successful general. He's built a bridge across the Rhine. He's conquered Gaul. He's done a lot. He's not necessarily going to <laughs> be shaking in his boots because the soothsayer came up to him and, and gave him that kind of warning. But there's a story that the, the morning he was preparing to go to the Senate house, his wife Calpurnia wakes up and she, she's absolutely beside herself. She tells him, don't go, 
don't go. I had this horrible dream. If you go, you'll die. You won't come home. If you leave now, you will never come home. And he's just like, oh, you know, look, I know you love me, but mm, this sounds a little crazy. You know, don't worry about it. Who, who's going to kill me? I'm a great guy and a great warrior. I'm very popular. He was very popular um, with the common citizenry of Rome. And he, in fact, extended citizenship to many of them. He made a lot of populist reforms. But his wife, according to the story, was extremely upset. He still went, of course, and he was assassinated. Now, why was he assassinated? You remember? Yeah. What was the motivation? Why don't you tell everybody? Because I'm a little bit afraid to say. Okay, well, I mean, the main motivation was, of course, the patrician class, the, up, the upper crust of Rome, was worried that this general had too much power. They, did. they were uh, afraid that he was going to basically override the Republic. Now, there had been uh, times in the past in Rome where dictators had come to power to solve a sort of impending crisis. There was Marius, the general who became a dictator. There was Sola, who became a dictator and was much nastier than Marius. And uh, the story goes that he was eaten by worms and that's how he died. So he, he had a particularly nasty death, you know, which everybody thought he deserved. But the point was, you know, they died or stepped down and the Republic was preserved. Cincinnatus, of course, the virtuous dictator was the, the man who was approached and given these powers because Rome was in crisis. And he said, but I don't want to take all that power just for myself. And they said, oh, but please, we need you. You're such a great leader. Um, and so he did reluctantly. And then when he'd done everything that, that he wanted to do and Rome was at peace again, he uh, retired and went to go live a quiet life in the country. He didn't want to keep that power. But, but Caesar had made a lot of enemies like Cato the Younger and Cicero. And these people were concerned that Caesar having the personality that he did and also going out of his way to adopt uh, Octavian as a male heir was trying to set up basically a monarchy. And the Romans hated the notion of a monarchy. Yeah, my guess was he was becoming very godlike to them, or at least it, it, his ego was becoming very godlike. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they were getting that vibe from him that he was not going to step down uh, peacefully and that if they let him continue in this role, that he would end the Republic. Now, by murdering him, that triggered the civil wars and the rise of Octavian, who then became the Emperor Augustus, and did finally and truly end the Republic. There, there were a few moments in, in the early Julio-Claudian dynasty, like the Emperor Claudius. He was a staunch Republican. The Praetorian Guard appointed him emperor, said, hey, look, you've got to be emperor. We've got to have an emperor after Caligula. And so he said, okay, well, I, I will take these powers and I'll do some things that I think need to get done, but then I want to resign and I want to uh, bring the Republic back. But that wasn't possible. Um, things had changed too much. And, and the... The... The Republic couldn't handle Rome as it was, with the expansive power that it had. Um, its territory was growing by leaps and bounds. And uh, they're just, the Republic wasn't a powerful enough structure to effectively govern the empire. At least that's, that's one read of it. And that's the one I tend to agree with. Man. Now, Always learning stuff when you come on. Here. Fun, fun side note. I like this one uh, because I'm I'm sort of a a language person, you could say. Well, 
we remember the scene, right? So C Caesar comes to the Senate house and first yeah. he's stabbed in the back and then everybody joins in. He's stabbed something like 44 times. Anyway, a lot of times. And a lot of those wounds weren't lethal. So he suffered a lot. And then Brutus comes up to stick his dagger in. And Brutus um, was his protege, like his adopted son. And so the idea is he, he turned to him and said, e tu, Brute? Which is, of course, Latin, right? So that, that's actually from William Shakespeare, I believe. Yeah, you too, but, Brutus. Mm -hmm. But if we think back as to how um, upper-class Romans actually interacted, with each other. He probably would have said that in Greek, not Latin. Damn. Because Always upper, class, upper class Romans spoke uh, spoke Greek with each other actually. So so he wouldn't have said um See, my podcast can be educational. I like it. Kaisu techne and you son Kaisu not not in latin so when i when i learned that um i was i think i was a freshman in college and it kind of blew my mind and i had one of those moments like you mean my latin teacher didn't tell me the real story <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so beware the odds of march don't do anything too risky today <laughs> well valerie it's been awesome chatting with you um where can people find you at um your motivational page where you can they can see your poem readings as well oh yeah well thanks for mentioning that um it's on instagram at t with dr valerie t like the drink t-e-a with d-r-v-a-l-e-r-i-e and i have an instagram that's just my name which i will i will send to you because my name is long and has many letters. I'll make sure I link it all in the description. And thank you for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.